Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that uses the power of editing to hide when it's lost its place for 25 seconds. My name is Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner, propaganda Steve Haynes, isn't with us today. He's off exploring Peppa Pig world. So instead, joining us, we have Shaz Rahman. Hello, Shaz. Hello, Corey. So we're going to use the fact that Steve is away looking into the discipline in schools, which is such a feature of Peppa Pig world. Given the Ashes is starting soon, we are going to have a look at the biggest scandal in cricket that's happened over the past year. That's the Azim Rafiq affair and the impact of institutional racism in cricket. Who is Azim Rafiq and why was he recently before the House of Commons Media and Sports Select Committee? Yes, Azim Rafiq is a former professional cricketer who is about 30 or 31 years old, who is Yorkshire and he used to play for Yorkshire in two different spells and he has basically accused Yorkshire Cricket Club of being institutionally racist, of supporting a culture of bullying and harassment based on his ethnic background. He basically tried to get support and have Yorkshire Cricket Club investigate these serious allegations and instead had a report written that almost accused him of being racist whilst saying that the actual other actions of players who were alleged to be involved in a racist culture, they were engaging in friendly banter. And so Yorkshire tried to hide this, but it exploded and it's now a national news story and it's cost Yorkshire a lot in terms of money, in terms of reputational damage. And it's now got so advanced that the government is now part of this. So just to detail a few of the specific things that Rafiq has, has alleged, which I suppose he was able to do in the select committee because he's covered by parliamentary privilege and therefore can't get sued. I think a lot of the reasons why scandals like this haven't been uncovered is because people I think are worried about defamation suits. So a few a few things alleged. So one of them, um, so Rafiq is Muslim. Um, his first experience of drinking alcohol was club cricket when he was held down and forced to drink red wine when he was 15. And that is not just a sort of tuppenny halfpenny club. That was a Barnsley Cricket Club. So Barnsley Cricket Club is a venerable historical institution. So you've had massive England cricketers like Geoffrey Boycott played at Barnsley. Um, Dickie Bird, who was a famous test umpire, also played for Yorkshire, played for Barnsley. Um, if you're not as obsessed with cricket as me and Shazar, you might have heard of Michael Parkinson, unless you're one of our younger listeners. If you are one of our younger listeners, he was a famous TV interviewer, so he also played for Barnsley. So this isn't just a sort of random club, is it? This is a proper institution. Oh, yeah, and Yorkshire's very proud of its own identity, and Yorkshire Cricket Club is censored to that. Absolutely. Well, famously, Yorkshire cricketers used to have to be born in the county of Yorkshire. And I think Yorkshire's first overseas cricketer was Sachin Tendulkar in, I think, 1992. Yeah, there's a long culture there as well of insularity. So to be accepted at Yorkshire Cricket Club, you have to be the most famous cricketer in the world. <laughs> yeah, basically, at the time. Also, um, Rafiq alleges he was regularly referred to as uh, as the P word, which we're not going to use in the podcast, and Rafa the Kafir in the dressing room and in public as well. 
Asian cricketers were referred to and addressed as elephant washers. The clip that was played most on the news, I think that's got uh, most traction, is I think the, the hardest one to watch, isn't it? When Rafiq is talking about the stillborn death of his son and Yorkshire's director of cricket, who's Martin Moxon, who himself was an England cricketer in the 1980s. Rafiq says that Martin Moxon tore a strip off him, um, essentially, I think, having a go at him not coming to work. That's not just an institutional racism thing. That's just a whole culture, a whole toxic culture of mess, isn't it? Yes, it's, uh, it contributes to, to toxic masculinity where you're expected just to carry on no matter what happens to you. Post-traumatic stress is not a thing where if you show weakness, you are then, you are then basically castigated for having emotions. Uh, so there's a player who's still at Yorkshire at the moment called Gary Balance, used to play for England. He apparently called people of colour Kevin. Uh, there's so, and uh, Just as an aside, because of what Rafik has said, there's been other cricketers who've... So there's one of them, I think, plays for Northamptonshire, who would call Asian cricketers Steve. He found their names too hard to pronounce, even though he was told repeatedly by these cricketers that they didn't want that they found it uncomfortable and would rather be called by their proper name. Imagine that. So because Gary Balance was calling these people of colour Kevin, there's another England former England critic called Alex Hales, who it's thought called his dog Kevin because he was black. That's certainly what Rafiq alleges in his testimony. The other, I think, high profile incident because it refers to a, a former England captain, Michael Vaughan, saying that Michael Vaughan told a group of Asian players in 2009, there's too many of you lot, we need to do something about it. It's just something that Vaughan denies happens, but I think... Three out of four cricketers of uh, South Asian backgrounds verified this. Yeah. The reason I suppose it seems to be institutional is because you've got this essentially this culture of denial, haven't you? So Rafiq went to Yorkshire. Yorkshire didn't get an independent report. And in fact, the England-Wales Cricket Board, um, they told the select committee at the same hearing, they left it to Yorkshire to decide if they were racist because apparently Yorkshire were very clear they wanted to run the investigation themselves. Talk about MPs marking their own homework. Like this is, um, so you'll be shocked, listeners, to discover that the Yorkshire inquiry into Yorkshire racism found that Yorkshire wasn't racist. But they also found that Gary Balance, well, that the U, let's not, let's move away from the, that the use of the P word was made in the spirit of friendly banter. So that's all right then. Yeah, and also to add to that is that an allegation against Rafiq was also made in, in reference to one of the players in the use of the word Zimbo, which may or may not be an insulting term, but seems to be a really big double standard there. Why would Rafiq be accused of? being racist and the reporter said that if he was still at the club they would then take disciplinary action against him for that using that phrase whereas the other uh, the p word which was repeatedly used was friendly banter so is, is that an obvious attempt to discredit Rafiq in the report to try and shut him up before anything else happens afterwards i mean it feels that way doesn't it especially given what's happened since since Rafiq's done the, uh, the testimony and it has met the the scandals made national news Comments have been uncovered that I think he made in 2009-10 himself when he would have been 19, um, which refer to negative stereotypes about Jewish people, don't they? It's, it's this sort of anti-Semitic trope that Jews are obsessed with money. Yes. And to his credit, Rafiq has made a fulsome apology, I think met with the Board of Deputies to kind of repeat that fulsome apology, and was also 
Um, I think recently, the week we were recording this, um, met with Holocaust survivors and was actively going out there to learn more about their experiences in what seem, in what seems to be a genuine act of remorse and going out there to find out some more information about these issues, which is actually a, a much more mature and self yeah self aware step than a lot of his accusers have been. Well, I illustrate is that anybody can be racist, like racism, unconscious biases, conscious biases. It's not about any one race or ethnicity. Anybody can be racist against any, anybody else. It's more that if you if you have said something racist, it's important to recognise that that's wrong and the damage it can cause. So thinking back to that Michael Vaughan point, he may have said that as a throwaway comment, uh, just as a joke, and he, would, I have no idea what he believes, but uh, he may not believe those things, and he may have said it uh, in in a context he thought was just say nice comments, and then did all have a chuckle and move on. But for what looks like from the outside is that if you're in a call shot, Rafiq felt like he was in where he was constantly being treated like a second class cricketer, a second class person, where he felt like he was being bullied the whole time because of his ethnicity. A throwaway comment from somebody else who may not even know what the situation is or may know what the situation they're going through can be a lot more damaging. If Michael Vaughan said that's another group of people another, uh, who were of a different ethnic background, they may have found it hilarious and it may be, may be friendly banter, but you have to be very careful to know that everybody involved in these situations buys into that same culture. So that's the, that's the really important part is that what you say may or may not be racist in different contexts, but the really important thing is that if you're going to say something like that, that may have the opportunity to cause offence, then you need to know that the people you're with share the similar values or at least recognise what you're saying isn't what you believe. It's a really good point. And I think it's worth emphasising that, and certainly just thinking about a teaching background, you can easily, easily as a teacher, say, throw a remark to a pupil that, as a teacher, you might forget. But actually, if you're a small child... It could live on for years. I think Lewis Hamilton has talked about similar things, hasn't he? About yeah. teachers sort of saying, "Well, you'll you know never amount to anything," which he remembers, you know, twenty, thirty years on. You know, after he's been knighted, after he's won however many world titles, still remembers. And it's a it's a similar similar here, isn't it? When you've got that power imbalance, and it, when a lot of it is, you've got that that dressing room culture, but that dressing room culture is is shaped in a lot of ways by toxic masculinity who are quite happy to see racist remarks as banter but haven't actually there that is not a shared culture that is just one that's been set and dominated by by the sounds of it two or three quite loud individuals but over decades right i mean this mm. isn't new the, the, the point is other cricketing scandals have, have come out from this uh essex is now involved in a scandal scotland has recently had accusations from a british asian player so the, the, these I'm sure if you go to every club, there'll be a similar story. Uh, the the point isn't not to focus on individuals. So individuals may have done right or wrong. They may have said things allegedly. But we're seeing these patterns all over the place in cricket in our system. We're seeing stories from different players coming out who were professional, who were in academies, saying how they were treated and how, saying how there was a culture where you couldn't speak out. If you were, then... Your, your shot at professional cricket was over or your shot at playing for England was over. So that that's the really important part. It's not to say, you said this, you're a bad person. It's to understand that you said this part of a wider context where 
people from ethnic minority backgrounds aren't given the same opportunities as their white peers. I think Fink's actually in quite a good position to do that because not just because of his obvious contrition now of his past remarks, but also because from the outset, he and I think it was his lawyer who was interviewed on the Today programme before his testimony were very, very clear that this isn't about seeking revenge, that this is not about an individual, but as you say, is about that particular culture. Um, so the really, really worrying thing from that Yorkshire scandal for me is how far Yorkshire Cricket Club went to try and hide it. So this didn't have to be a national scandal. It could have been a Yorkshire County Cricket Club recognises past behaviour, it apologises, and it sets new policies to make sure this doesn't happen again. And it would have been embarrassing. It would have been in the news, but it wouldn't have cost them multi million pounds worth of sponsorship. Like Yorkshire County Cricket Club now has to fight for its financial survival. Headingly was a test ground, which obviously brings lots of revenue because you get tens of thousands of people coming in rather than a county game where you get tens of tens of people turning up. Uh, and you see, I think big sponsors like, like Yorkshire Tea has pulled out. Uh, title sponsor the ground has pulled out as well. So the report in, in, initially, Yorkshire released that. I, I think after sort of dragging their feet a bit, they released it on the day in which the in final India England game was postponed. So and it did feel a bit like, to borrow a phrase, they were trying to use a good day to bury bad news and sneak it out. And I think to the credit of people like Sky, for instance, actually they've done a, a good, dare I say it, forensic job of talking about it, despite the fact the clubs obviously tried to hide what's going on. Yeah, well you have like Nasu Hussain, a former England captain from a British Asian background talking about the dress and culture in the England cricket team when he was England captain and how it wasn't, you know, he never talked about racism, but he did talk about culture of where bullying each other was just the norm. And he talked to, and he talked to Michael Afton about that and how that, that wasn't conducive to playing your best cricket. If, if you're getting, if I, this is me paraphrasing, not actually quoting here, but if you get zero and then the next day everyone in training's slagging you off, how is that going to help you score a 50 or 100 in your next innings. Certainly when Hussain and Atherton were playing, that man management wasn't really a thing. Um, again, just thinking about Ray Inworth, who I think was manager of the England cricket team during the 90s, um, a man who did a lot, I think, to hold back England cricket in that period. And part of the issue, you had cricketers who, it, as in any form of life, some people respond better to a bollocking, some respond better to an arm around the shoulder, some responds better to gentle cajoling. But instead, it feels like there was a bit of a, a sort of stiff upper lip attitude that you should be grateful for playing for England, you should be giving your best, and if you're not, then you're just being lazy and a, and a failure. And and certainly, Mike Marquez actually wrote in, in any Anyone But England about 20 years ago now about um, the sort of the dual loyalty trope that a lot of England cricketers found in the 90s. So in the 90s, lots of very talented England cricketers like Chris Lewis, Phil De Freitas, Devon Malcolm, all of a kind of Afro-Caribbean background. The There were a number of stories in the press essentially saying, almost trying to imply, one, one, in fact, one of them literally comes out and says, you should apply the Norman Tebbit cricket test to them. You know, who would they cheer on for? Uh, essentially say that, we can't really trust their loyalty. Now, there's a couple of things to come out of that. I think one of them is that dual loyalty was not just to um, 
black and Asian cricketers. That was also applied to white cricketers who were born in different countries like Graham Hick. It was to Kevin Peterson later on, who were born, I think, in Zimbabwe, South Africa, retrospectively. But specifically on, on the sort of racist point, Mark Butcher, who again is another uh, black cricketer who played for England around the same time now, so saying Mark Atherton did, did a documentary looking at the issue of sort of historic racism in cricket in the 80s, 90s and early noughties. And he said during that documentary, he was stunned into silence because you had, so he, he obviously, he, he talked to a lot of professional cricketers in who he was playing with around that time, would have known them professionally for, for decades. But he had never been told about the stories of racism that he was being told for, for that documentary. So there's obviously, there's been issues there, I think, for 20 or 30 years, which are only now just being discussed. Yeah, because if you said them openly, in the 80s, is that the end of your England career? Will, will you ever be allowed to represent your country again? Or even be allowed to go down to the pub without getting racist abuse in the streets? Generations change, um, but that abuse will stay with you forever. Like Those people who suffered that will never forget that, but it was a different generation. They knew that they had to act differently. So one of the encouraging things from this scandal is that the world is a different place. Like Institutional racism is very much entrenched in cricket, but the response is now very different. Had this happened in the early 90s, I mean, would it have been a scandal in the first place? Probably not. It probably would have been, oh, okay, and then you just move on, and then nothing changes. Whereas now, there are real, there are real actual consequences for encouraging and fostering this culture. And there has to be change, because otherwise... Yorkshire Cricket Council Cricket Club won't get new sponsors. They won't get their test status back. They have to now quantifiably demonstrate how they're going to create a new inclusive culture. It's, it's a really interesting dichotomy, isn't it, between companies, as you say, who are don't want to be associated with this sort of repugnant behaviour. You've also then got I couldn't I mean I couldn't believe it was Jordan Peterson on Question Time who was on the week with us was discovered who uh, yeah. What, quite, quite what he knows about cricket can probably be written on the underside of a box, can't it? Um, talking about how there's no such thing as institutional racism. But then you've also got people like Jonathan Agnew, the BBC's cricket correspondent, who I'm generally quite a fan of, but um, was saying, well, if, if Rafiq was, uh, had such a terrible time at Yorks the first time around, why did he go, down for a, go back for a second time? Um, to which the obvious response is, well, he, he, he's got to pay the rent. It's his home. Yeah, uh, you know he he might want to go back to his family and where they may still live, or you know he might he might still get that racist abuse elsewhere. So if you if you go to another county curriculum and you get racist abuse, well, you might as well go home and yeah. But I, I think he'd had a loan spell at Derbyshire, hadn't he? But they couldn't afford to keep him on. And again, um, I mean Yorkshire's a much bigger, much wealthier club than Derbyshire. Or at least it used to be before they started losing sponsors. For and and just to bring it back slightly to the point about about council culture again. Again, I think I I find the interesting thing about these sort of it's like the Toby Young free speech advocate type view is a bit like a bit like the way that um, communists all seem to be quite secretive and assume the whole world is organised as small secretive cells like the communist parties are. You've got a sort of council culture who are continually. The same sort of people who complain about the fact that you can't say anything anymore, Shaz. You can't call anyone a word without, you know, losing your career and what have you. That actually, 
they were the set avenues like the spectator were the first people to try and essentially say that Rafik's experience had no merit because of the past racist comments that he'd made, which I think is is interesting. Well, yeah, it's free speech as long as it suits me. Yeah. So if if you're saying something that I don't like, therefore I can counsel you. The big thing that I think is the most important from this is that we live in Birmingham. We are about three miles away from one of the biggest cricket clubs in the country. And I think they've had one British Asian player come through the last 10 years. And for him to find success, he had to leave and go to Worcestershire, Murray and Alley. And behind Edgebaston Cricket Club is a large British Asian population that plays cricket in the parks on a daily basis. And yet, I don't think one other person has come through and made it successfully at Warwickshire in the last 10 years. Those being, there was a frightening stat in The Guardian that you are 34 times more likely to succeed if you're from a private school background than if you're from a British Asian background. And, and it isn't just in Birmingham as well. So I think the, so across the whole country, so 30% of, recrea- of cr- people who play cricket recreationally in England and Wales are British Asians, but they only make up 4% of the professional group. As you say, it's a really frightening stat. I don't know if it's, and but part of it, it I think, is a, a class thing as well. Because as you rightly mentioned, you've got cricket, which is dominated in a lot of ways by the sort of private and public schools still, um, which, which I think is partly, I think the class, so for me, the class thing feels like it's because cricket is just harder to put on in schools like football, it, it, there's just much more equipment that you need than, than football. Well, it's, it's not just that. I mean, that, that's a thing that could easily be overcome. It's that if you provide clubs where you are funded, so you know you play, you provide a community club where it's free to play. Hmm. You then do the talent ID, and then players from different disadvantaged backgrounds can make it. Whereas you know you have those kind of scouting networks, you have those kind of entrenched cultural norms in football, which helps those deprived kids make it whereas in cricket those networks will exist but they exist to help the established private school kids practically they have the networks which gets them into the school teams which then gets them into the links of the academies of the Warwickshires and the Yorkshires whereas if you're in a deprived in a city area just behind Edgebaston you've got to pay to play in a club if you're if you're going to food bank for food there's no way you're going to prioritise getting into a, a network and playing at a level which then can get, help you progress. So all those kids who have potential talents, who in football are making, well, they're making it if they're from a black background, but not making it from a British Asian background. But that's an entirely different discussion for another day. But in cricket, where you would expect them to be able to get there, they're not. There are less players going through now who are from an Afro-Caribbean background than there were 20, 30 years ago, despite all this horrendous racism that was much worse 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, football seems more meritocratic, I think, in, in, at in playing that level. sense. Yes, definitely. And it's one of the things that is mentioned. So uh, the day we're recording this, I think the ECP's put out their 12-point plan. And one of the things they've said in it is that they want to try and improve scouting networks to try and remove those barriers. I always find it quite amusing that... Um, so uh, Cricket has a Wisdom Cricketers Almanac sort of year's Bible about what happens in cricket in a particular year. And there's still, even now, there's still a section on schools cricket 
and the, and the uh, cricket, what happens in, in public schools. And there's always a bit of a write-up of sort of a thousand words about what's happening in public schools in the year. But those recreational leagues in Balsall Heath are probably not mentioned at all. Yes. Um, and those kids who are from Balsall Heath who are playing in the playground every day, they don't believe it's an opportunity. They don't believe it can happen. Whereas those kids who are at Edgebaston School, they know if they play and they do well, they will they will progress. Mm. Like if they continue to do well and they get the right support, they have the best opportunity to make it. Whereas those kids down the road, even if they were able to look somehow get a scholarship to Edgebaston, they still won't get the same opportunities. And it's access to coaches as well, isn't it? If you're at a private school or a public school, you can probably afford to have an ex pro who's able to coach you if you're uh Again, let's say near Attock Cricket Club in Birmingham, obscure Birmingham reference, where Moen Ali used to play, um, and you went to a school near there, you might end up with a random teacher, say me, as your cricket coach, who's done sort of, you know, I did some cricket coaching training, but anyone who's ever seen me bat will know that I'm not necessarily the best person to tell the next generation how to do a switch hit. Well, so, it is a difference there, isn't it? It's between helping people enjoy themselves playing cricket and having a pathway to professional cricket. We shouldn't be expecting you to make the next Murray and Ali, but we should be able to expect you to say identify somebody who has talent to put them in a network where they can be the next Murray and Ali. What happens next? So as as we've said, the sponsors are pulling out of Yorkshire. There is a, a twelve point plan. A lot of it is fluff, but the one that matters most to me uh, is that the that pathway. If if you don't believe you can make it. There is no way you'll make it. So that's what we want to see next is in the next six months, as well as well as the as well as the reaction continuing with more allegations coming out. Is racism and bullying in a cultural workplace that is fairly easy to identify and act on. A culture where kids have no hope of making it, despite the fact they may have the same talents as a private school kid at ten years old. That's the real problem. That's the thing that has to that really has to have affirmative action, and without institutions changing and actually actively changing how they operate, we'll we'll have this conversation in ten years' time again. It depends how optimistic you want to be. If you're glass half full, glass half empty. If we're thinking about dressing room culture, so when England won the World Cup two years ago, Owen Morgan said that we knew that Allah was with us because. Adil Rashid and Thank Ali. you. Yeah, because Adil Rashid and, and Moen Ali said, you know, it's, we, we've got Allah with us too. We're in a sort of a, a slightly pointed rebuke, I think, to what Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying. I think, imagine the more sort of blonde St. George types kind of riding on the white horse. On the other hand, in the Ashes squad that's going to lose to Australia in a few weeks' time, you, uh, Joe Root, the captain, I don't think there's any specific allegations about wrongdoing there, but Joe Root uh, grew, in, grew up in Yorkshire, played cricket for Yorkshire, I think was roommate of Gary Balance, who we've referred to earlier, and I think has been a bit equivocal, hasn't he, when asked in the press about this stuff. So I think England have taken the knee before uh, match it, test matches earlier this year, but you want to see more leadership, I think, from the from the top as well. And, and you wonder what that dressing room culture is like. Yeah, well, um, Joe Root is an interesting example. So he he was once batting against West Indies and a West Indian player made a homophobic slur against him and he actively called that player out on the pitch. And there's been no ever, ever allegations. So there's never been allegations of 
Joe Root acting inappropriately. But the point was that Joe Root would have been in a situation where this would have been going on, he, these alleged allegations. He would have been on the nights out. This is what Azim Rafiq saying, is that uh, Joe Root would have been there. And maybe Joe Root doesn't remember them, which shows how normalised it was. Maybe Joe Root does remember them and he just doesn't, doesn't want to talk about it because obviously mud sticks. So the, the important point there is not Joe Root, is that that culture of where we talked about Michael Vaughan earlier, that you don't recognise the impact of these actions on other people who don't share the same background as you. So you can't empathise with how they are feeling when these things are happening. And on the subject of saying nothing, I think that's pretty where we'll end it for this week. Uh, if you want to hear more of us, I'm hoping that Shaz and I can wrap another one up for us to record for our champagners on Patreon. So if you want to hear that, you'll hear that on patreon.com forward slash not enough champagne. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Bookie Good Times. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod and our Facebook page is not enough champagne. I'm at Paperback Rioter. And I'm at Shaz Raman Fersi. Happy plotting. Mm-hmm.